on today's episode of The Mythic Masculine. Uh, there's been a lot of times in the last 2,000 years that men either picked up weapons or weapons were put in the hands of young men. It's like, now you're going to fight. Now you're going to go kill some people. Now you're going to either attempt to defend your people or go kill some other people. And when there's not an etiquette of ritual to resolve those deaths, there's a ghost problem that builds up. And when it builds up intergenerationally, then you have boats full of white people with a whole long trail of white ghosts behind them fleeing uh, like a sort of like it's lancing of a boil fleeing Europe in a way, but exporting the, yes, the physical diseases, but, but the cultural illness as well. And so there's a, there's a running from the ghosts that can happen. And so when there's not awareness of and accompanying ritual technology to ancestralize and address the ghosts, they'll continue to uh, eat our lives up. And their hunger is a kind of intimacy. It's how they're staying in a relationship. If you were a ghost, you would eat your family too. It's just what you do if you're a ghost. What does it mean to be a man today? The old ideas of masculinity are dissolving, and the new expressions are just beginning to rise. In the era of Me Too and biospheric collapse, how might we look to the old myths and archetypes for guidance? to navigate this space between stories. This podcast explores the historical, cultural, and contemporary voices that are shaping this dynamic conversation of the emerging masculine. Greetings, dear listener. My guest today is Daniel Four, a teacher and practitioner of practical animism, specializing in ancestral and family healing, and helping folks learn to relate well with the other-than-human world. He is a doctor of psychology, as well as a marriage and family therapist, weaving many years of immersion in earth-honoring ways, including European pagan and Native American paths, Mongolian shamanism, and West African tradition. He is the author of Ancestral Medicine, Rituals for Personal and Family Healing, and over 15 years has given hundreds of trainings and talks across the United States. In our conversation today, Daniel and I explore a number of themes, including the fundamental shift needed to recognize kinship with the natural world, exploring beyond the gender binary through indigenous epistemologies, and naming the practical love languages that are food for your ancestors. Enjoy. Welcome, Daniel, to the show. Thanks. It's good to be here, Ian. I'd love to begin by hearing where you are right now, and whether that's physically, spiritually, emotionally, to just give the listeners a sense of, uh, of yeah, your yourself in this moment. I'm well enough, personally. I'm geographically. I'm in Western North Carolina, traditional Cherokee lands, and I'm ancestrally down lineage from English, German, Irish settler colonialists and um, married and with a child that we're taking care of. And it's been a little harder to focus in recent days because of the activation from the 
protests and the necessary change work here in the United States. And I'm impacted as it should be. But I'm I'm well, and I'm glad to be here and feeling resourced enough. For the listeners, this podcast is being recorded on June 2nd. And that means, yeah, we're in the midst of a, quite a large um, upsurge of energy, particularly around uh, police injustice and, and racial equality. And what I've learned from ritual is that it's not ever about banishing the world from from showing up and um, and maybe it's fitting then that maybe we just take a few minutes to to hear from you how you see what's going on like within a larger context. Um, I know this podcast, you know, we do speak around this idea of the mythic lens uh, or to see, to see mythically, and I wonder for you, how do you see what's going on from a mythic lens? Yeah, I don't have some neat and tidy story about it. I know that what's happening here in the United States and, and other places at this moment is a catalyzed by the public murder and execution of George Floyd is a manifestation of a centuries-old uh, expression of white supremacy and colonialism and occupation of land. And so in that sense, it's not as if it's a new thing. And yet each precious life is new and different and worthy of a full systemic response to those injustices. I uh, feel concerned for the people protesting in the sense that we're also in the middle of a pandemic, which has been so, so terribly mismanaged by the failed leadership in this country at this time. And I think that because of the upheaval of the pandemic, there is a kind of shift in the axis of the world just a bit in the sense that um, other things might be possible that weren't possible before this, despite the, the constriction and the death and the injustice. So I'm challenging myself to really stabilize and hold the vision of the good outcome, because I sometimes can be a bit cynical about how difficult it is to enact systemic change. So that's that's one thing I'm trying to hold and just trying to remember to be mindful of impact and not taking up too much space as a European ancestored person when a lot of black, indigenous, and people of color, their uh, voices need amplified and supported and carefully listened to. And now more than ever, it's ongoing, but especially in this moment. So those are a few things. I came across recently a, a quote from a black author who I really appreciate named uh, Adrienne Marie Brown. Mm -hmm. She wrote a book called Emergent Strategy. Sounds like you're familiar from the way you're nodding. Mm -hmm. And uh, the quote was, you know, things aren't getting worse. They're just getting uncovered. And yeah, I really appreciate that frame uh, specifically because, you know, I think we're sort of, I don't know, almost eight years out of uh, 2012, right? Which was known at the time to be this, this moment of apocalypse, you know, that was used depending on what somebody's perspective was on that word. And the one that I felt most helpful was this idea of that apocalypse was the lifting of the veil, that it was about, you know, that which had been hidden or uh, suppressed, and certainly not to all communities, you know, the ones that are being oppressed, they're very aware of the shadow of the culture. Um, but for those that maybe had been more unaware that, you know, it was really about this feedback loop of the system, you know, finally 
kind of kind of bursting forth. And it feels like in this moment, and not just with you know racial justice, but also ecological, and in so many realms, that that seems to be what's what's happening. That you know so much of that um, hiddenness or the capacity to keep it hidden is no longer uh, possible because we're hitting all these tipping points and and all the rest. And and what does it mean to respond to these times? you know, in a way that recognizes that. I hope you're right. I have been concerned at times at what seems like an unhelpful kind of magical thinking around the pandemic as if disruption alone will cause systemic change. And I don't think it will. I don't think there's any guarantee of any good outcome. If anything, it seems a bit improbable, but that's the way that I mean that I say I'm challenging myself to hold the vision of success. And sometimes the transformation of racism and sexism and colonialism can get collapsed, at least in North America and ways of talking about it, to an internal job, like a psychological job. And it's not that that is, and same with the connection with the earth and spirituality and all that, or uh, myth, anything, like there's a sense of personal cultivation. And that it's not that that's false, it's just really, really incomplete. And when we talk about transforming police violence or racism, mostly that lives in the systems. And in, everyone could wake up quite conscious, and still we have these systems that need transformed. And the abolition of the prison system and the equal access just to resources on like all across the board and the, um, ending of violence and the systems that condition that violence into police officers, etc. So it's the same. We can become really spiritually connected to the earth, but if there's still a massive human-driven extinction crisis, then I don't want to say it doesn't matter, but there needs to be structural change. And that rarely comes about easily. So I think it's important to uh, keep leaning into how do we get from here to there and that each person finds a way that works for their destiny and their gifts to participate in that somehow. I'm struck by this theme of relationship, which, you know, I see, I see as a theme of, um, you know, one could say the earth is, is trying to, you know, get the attention of a system which, you know, has largely been based on exploitation and, and consumption and, and how, communities of color and indigenous are trying to get the attention, you know, finally of those that are, have been in power and unaware uh, or some aware, but many aren't aware of, of what it's like to be under that system. And so this theme of relationship um, actually feels appropriate for also, um, you know, I, I believe you refer to a large body of the work that you do as practical animism and, and animism as an ability of, I don't know, enacting, cultivating the skill of relationship and I would love, I would love to hear more than about uh, that as a as a deeply you know necessary uh, lost art, perhaps for many peoples who, you know, in their own ancestry, you know, had this as a foundation. And why is that such a necessary kind of reskilling today? The word animism, I'm drawing in the use of that from the work of Graham Harvey, who's a British pagan scholar and a nice person, and he is in an intellectual lineage that includes people like Irving Hollowell and others who have spent dedicated time with indigenous folks. Uh, I believe Irving Hollowell did a lot of field work with Ojibwe, Ojibwe people in northern Great Lakes area, Turtle Island. And 
the word animism has colonialist, sort of racist European baggage, but new animism or a revival of the word, is, uh, including in ways that are informed by living indigenous elders and people finding that a useful way to describe things, is just a way of referring to an ethic of relationship that says you, living human people are just one kind of people. There are many other kinds, the ancestors, the mountains, the plants and animals, the deities, the stars, the spirits of the land are all different kinds of people as well. And they all have culture and we have by implication, moral and ethical accountability to them. And the implication is that human culture gets organized around that legally, politically, our education system, etc. So that is a kind of view that people often associate with intact indigenous cultures, which is not false. It's just that when you do it that way, you don't really resolve what about the other 95% of humans? Because I'm not indigenous and most people I meet are not among the 350 million or so humans who are legally, politically able to claim indigenous person. And that distinction matters for all kinds of reasons that have to do with the history of colonialism. And, and so there's not a need to legitimize your affirmation of family and relatedness as an ethic with the others by uh, identification with indigenous wisdom or philosophy or whatever. So, I mean, give credit when that's what's happening. But these understandings are also present in my own lineages as someone of German and English, a little bit of Irish ancestry. So, yeah. Using the term animism, uh, usually as it's used in a, say, a colonial context or, or almost a anthropological context, right, is kind of a label applied to, oh, look at those people. Yeah, they're animists, like um, as in differentiated from no, the the kind of quote norm of of modern you know human and you know it's actually the opposite which should be made to justify itself to be an inanimate to to practice inanimism is actually the deviation uh, you know could be seen as the deviation from what seems to have been yeah the the foundation of you know human culture um, and so I just really I, I'm always struck by that you know whenever I've even heard the term um, that it's like if the water you're swimming in is inanimism which it is, I think, for so many, you know, modern culture, it's quite a stretch of the imagination or the psychological idea of the self to, to actually extend personhood, you know, beyond oneself and, and not feel it that it's sort of a quaint pantomiming or something, you know, like I feel, and I, just, I struggle with this myself as well. I don't consider myself at all like that skillful with this, um, this ability to really be in relationship with the other than human. And I feel how much it stretches, you know, all of the prejudice that, that I've been conditioned into to say, you know, it's nice to feel the tree is alive, but, um, you know, we all know it's not really alive, and, and, but it's, you know, it's nice for you to pretend like it is. One of the fundamental qualities of, like, animist core values, the way I approach it is more of a core values or ethics-based approach that has ritual implications as well and can be ritualized, is the perspectival shift and getting good at engaging this fundamentally human gift that's reflected in our biology with mirror neurons of of trying to enter into the perspective of the other. And that could be the consciousness of the oaks or the mountains or your neighbor who has got really different politics or somebody who's had an experience of acute oppression or somebody's being harmed by you in ways that you don't realize they are. And so the 
same skills that would enable us to be very culturally empathic and skillful and uh, able to bring about the changes that we want to see. The same skills have ritual implications if we're trying to relate with the deity of lightning and thunder or with trying to greet the very small powers that are getting a lot of press these days because of the pandemic. And we have this capacity. It's a human capacity. And it's not uh, a luxury. It is hard won over thousands of generations of needing to be very attuned to the many beings that we eat and depend upon to survive. And we're still doing that, but a lot of the spirituality or spirituality starts with bears and redwoods rather than pigs and black beans. And I'm saying that the plants and animals that have been shaped through human contact and domestication are also big wisdom teachers if we can greet them. Mm -hmm. I know this is probably a sweeping epic saga, but I wonder if you could speak a little bit about how someone like you with your background and your ancestry in uh, England and Germany and Ireland um, would, would come upon this as really what feels like your soul's uh, calling, you know, to really give yourself to this work and, and where it took in you. Yeah, I ate some strong psychoactive stuff when I was a teenager. That was really, um, mm, that was something. And it uh, included a sense of bumping into forces and powers that I didn't have a category for, but seemed really clearly to be not just me. And so that sent me on a journey of trying to read about any kind of framework I could find for it. And when I was 17, I had the good fortune of meeting teachers in shamanic practice, pagan stuff, like other earthy white people. And they helped me to have a framework to relate directly with the big spirits of plants and animals. And then also with my own ancestors of blood. And so for the last 25 years, I've been studying with different teachers of religious systems, some within more well-known systems, some less so, but immersing myself in ritual arts with different teachers and crashing around and a little bit like, are you my mother? Do I belong here? Mm. And that kind of crashing around and also a little bit, um, yeah, I, just drawing wisdom from where I can. And in the last 15 years, but especially the last 10 in a more focused way, I've been involved in uh, Yoruba tradition. So I made, made trips to Nigeria and work with teachers in the U.S. as well to deepen in those systems. But it's just one way. It's just one frame. And I'm a doctor of psychology, so that helps me to see through some of the ways that any given religious system can get rigid or full of itself. Mm -hmm. Would you say that psychology itself has become a religion? Well, it's ideology, I suppose, in its own way. I mean, what, like psychology is still struggling to come out from under the weight of being very male and white and colonialist in its roots. That said, there are a lot of uh, queer people of color, working class people who are killing it in good ways with therapy and with psychology. So it's good to amplify those voices within the field. And the field in general, unfortunately, tends to be the psychology of 
living human beings' relationships with themselves and with others in a way that is lovely and profoundly incomplete in the sense that it, it isn't doesn't tend to be looking at the intimacy between the humans and the other than humans, all of which come with their own psychodynamics and projection and complexities. So I see it a lot when I step people through coming back into relationship with their ancestors. And one of the things that are people like, oh, I, I realize I'm replicating the same dynamics with them that I do with others in my life. I'm like, great. That indicates that you're experiencing them as an actual relationship because all your um, metabolized conditioning is present. Exciting. Yeah. So this podcast is The Mythic Masculine. And I would love to wonder about what what can the lens of animism uh, perhaps illuminate around the challenges of, of how gender is held today, like in a modern context, you know, within a binary or within a, you know, idea of, um, you know, set roles. Because one thing I'll say in this podcast is that we do explore this question a lot from different perspectives. And one of the themes that I think has emerged around gender is this idea that um, oftentimes, depending on who's talking about this conversation, gender is inherently seen as, as a problem to solve. Right, like it's uh, or it's inherently oppressive. Let's say, and and I've myself encountered a degree of like feminist work and things that I feel does kind of take that stance. I'm not saying it all does, certainly. And then on the other hand, people like Pat McCabe, an Indigenous grandmother, you know, who speaks about her encounter with uh, gender within a traditional ceremonial context, is suddenly very different. And she herself, even of Indigenous descent, you know, was deeply moved by what she saw. And suddenly, you know, the questions changed around, wait a second, so wait, is gender always, uh, you know, oppressive or is it, you know, whatever culture that's playing itself out? So, yeah, I would love to use that as a jump off point to hear uh, how we might wonder about gender differently through this lens. Yeah, we'll get that totally sorted in 60 <laughs> seconds or less. The uh, Let me say that generalizing in a big way, if we say that animism is a way of approaching life that foregrounds relationships and looks to the other than human web of kinship for inspiration on how to live and recognizes that culture arises from the earth and from the land and and culture is not only a human thing then we can generalize that there's an appreciation for diversity of form because when you look around and you see, and your family includes woodpeckers and microbes and rattlesnakes and mountains, then there are many different kinds of people in your family. And in that way, we see that the, the self, the, what we are, insofar as we reflect others and can do that, we see that internally there's also a diversity of form. So there's not just one voice, there's not just one thing that we are. So that ethic of plurality of form, I think, is useful when we try to wade into a conversation about gender. I do find that the uh, very binary, uh, the masculine uh, or the feminine way of speaking about it, it, it may be good medicine for certain people at certain times. And for me personally, it it doesn't land as well the way I would enter that is to say, well, let us start with sacred or useful or uh, well-articulated masculinities, plural, and f- and feminines, plural, as which we can start to do that as long as we s- also include non-binary or blended or uh, complex weaving of those you know, polarities, if you will. 
And then, and we say that any given human body, male, female, intersex, uh, isn't that uh, biology is not the same as gender, and that the two have a complex dance, but they're they're not fundamentally the same. And that doesn't mean that we can just eliminate the reality of socialization around gender or the profound way that the body and hormones and just the the body chemistry influences human behavior and psychology so it's a it's a sacred complex mess in a mm-hmm. good way uh so i i don't have the view that just um that it's so simplistic to as to say let's get rid of gender any more than we can say let us get rid of race i'm like well Perhaps we could start by celebrating ancestral diversity first, because th- there are noticeable differences, uh, uh, and don't overstate them. With respect to gender, yes, there are many different expressions, and your biological sex, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, your gender expression are all different. Like, I'm a cisgendered, bisexual, male uh i mean it's implied and cisgendered uh for me and a person who's i think kind of fulfilling usual gender uh expectations but not always even just doing relational ritual therapy kinds of work means that it's hard for me to relate with a lot mm-hmm. of guys mm-hmm. and um and I've been in ritual in Lakota spaces or even more so in Yoruba spaces where like this is an all men space. And would it be welcoming to trans men? Yeah. I don't know. Like, unfortunately, it depends. It's not my place to go to Nigeria and, and push at those limits necessarily. Mm-hmm. But um, w- one way to go with it is to to look at the different say in Yoruba cosmology, there are different deities that are characterized as masculine. Uh, Eshu, for example, is one. Uh, and, and I could th- name probably maybe 10 deities, and each of them is a different uh, uh, flavor or quality of, uh, of sacred masculine, if you will, a different kind of baba. And so that sets up a template that says there's not just one way to be a guy in the community. And in practice, many women are initiated to those priesthoods. And so female people, female body people can absolutely strongly enact a, a archetypally or mythically or you know, deity-wise masculine energy. No problem. And all the above, people can be initiated to multiple priesthoods. And so it depends on the day and what deity you're working with. So in that sense, I think cultivating a range of expression is healthy. Uh, with the deity of Eshu, sometimes he's characterized with breasts, hmm. kneeling, and so is also a shapeshifter, as are a lot of the deities. Oya is a, uh, there's not gendered pronouns in Yoruba, but is characterized as female, but sometimes people say, Oya wears the pants or shows up with a beard and goes to war. Not that women need a beard to go to war, but you get the idea. So. Hmm. So we, the, an ethic of play within form, I think, is one healthy entry point to how to dance with gender. We can't totally ignore it, nor can we uncritically just replicate what we've inherited. Mm. Recognizing that this, again, may be a, a sort of sweeping inquiry, um, 
I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the interplay, though, between you know what could broadly maybe be said as patriarchal culture, which again I, I still have a challenge with the word patriarchy as a as a catch-all because I do think that there's there is nuance in that and. You know, I'm drawing a little bit on, uh, I believe, the book Chalice and the Blade, where she actually differentiates between um, what she calls more like a dominator culture, um, which is is maybe a subset of patriarchy. But um, that all that to say, there's something about patriarchal culture in this context that seems to almost create like a polarization, which, which rig- more rigidly enforces the kind of differentiation between what you've just described as more of a blended, you know, playful um, allowance or even encouragement. Of gender and and I wonder, yeah, does that seem accurate to you to be a fair kind of um, consequence in a way of that polarization? Uh, it it resonates with me personally that uh, the gender binary and especially a rigid expression of that is culturally harmful and tends to go along with things like misogyny and violence toward women and erasure of queer and trans and non-binary people who are not gender conforming and so rigid roles around gender are harmful almost always and that doesn't mean that people must inhabit non-rigid roles or something like if somebody wants to uh, if their authenticity happens to be in a what we might consider like a, a very traditional pattern for a, a man or woman to occupy then blessings it's great uh, may there be space for everyone to to breathe deeply and be themselves. But and I also, for me, the I'll sometimes use the word patriarchy, and I, it's a kind of descriptor that at times can uh, lack in nuance depending on how it's used. And I think that big sweeping generalizations are themselves a kind of patriarchal style mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, in that sense, it, it doesn't mean, it's not to minimize the the real harms that continue to occur. Uh, so it's not from that spirit, but uh, it's important to recognize that if we're going to talk about patriarchy, just like racism, it's important to recognize that that can play out through any body. The black people can be racist toward other black people. I'm not saying, you know, or that, uh, women can enact patriarchal values so that uh, usually it's not like that, but it can also be like that. So nobody's immune. Nobody's a perfect victim or a, a perfectly only harmful. So that kind of uh, depersonifying or dehumanizing in people is, is harmful. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. I mean, for me, I've, I've tried to separate this idea as well from like an individual looking to absolve themselves from I'm not racist because, you know, X, Y, Z or something. And therefore, they end up um, misinterpreting a cultural moment or like a movement that's actually calling for systemic change. You know, it's this idea that, well, you know, yeah, not all men. Um, it, it falls on deaf ears when it's actually trying to point out that there's a systemic, clear thread of, let's say, oppression or or violence that seems to be coming from men within a particular culture, right? So, that to me happens again when the individual tries to separate themselves out to to absolve themselves from being you know somehow involved um, and and not and lose the systemic or the 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 wider lens. It's a symptom of constructing our identity in a very individualistic way. Uh-huh. We're the face of our lineages, not only that, but certainly also that. 
And if, uh, you know, a mushroom wouldn't be like, well, I disown the mycelium. I'm just an individual mushroom. I'm like, well, you don't understand yourself that well. And so the uh, individual humans are like, I'm the face of my lineage, one of their faces, as are you of your people, as are every listener and their people. And so even anyone listening to this is a kind of encounter between my people and your people. And in that sense, it means being willing to inhabit the personal level, where we're individuals, being able to inhabit, inhabit the big level, where we're all humans relative to SARS-CoV-2 or the moon or whatever. Uh, and between those two levels of scale, I'm a guy. Not everyone's a guy. Like, I'm a white guy. Not everyone's white. I'm a U.S. citizen. Not everyone's from the United States, like, etc. We have group levels of belonging fraught as they are, that require us to inhabit creatively those identities. And that includes around gender. And it includes like, yeah, I'm a guy and I can do what I want, you know, to a degree with that. But to just uh, act as if I can disown it is, is the equivalent of saying, well, let's all be colorblind. Well, that's not helpful. Yeah. Hmm. I'd love to draw back to this other thread that I, I feel I'm also tracking throughout the podcast too, is this really related to this capacity um, for kinship. Like maybe that's one way I'll say it that like, I'm trying to think like, what is, what is one of the wounds or the consequence for men in particular, just for this moment? What is the, one of the consequences of in a way losing the capacity to be in relationship with uh, you know the the other than human world because i'll I'll just say you know in my life you know i'll I'll go through walk in the forest right and over the last few years, you know grateful to certain teachers that have actually been able to um grant me the capacity to begin to see differently you know to begin to not just see a forest but actually to be able to differentiate and see different trees you know different plants or a particular bird and suddenly you know again there's this this whole other a realm begins to open up that hints at you know what it might feel like to actually be able to relate and to even to be able yeah. to even speak the language of the place in a way that they would understand right and and so I guess what I'm trying to draw attention to is is I see so much of the coping strategies of men in this culture almost like a a coping for such a profound sense of loneliness right which which so yeah. many wouldn't be able to articulate as that's what it is. You know, and and I feel like that's also the consequence of a world where humans are at the top of you know quote the top of the hierarchy and lords and masters is we sort of actually um, dis distance ourselves to this you know a, a kind of loneliness which then we cope with that loneliness often through substance and addiction and busyness and all the rest and so I feel like you're offering something so essential again which is the capacity to be in relationship with a certain language again. There's a powerful and useful book by an author, Resma Menachem, called My Grandmother's Hands, about, uh, it's about a lot of things, but it's a, about the trauma and violence that's inflicted upon black and brown people in the United States, especially. And one of his arguments, which I agree with, is that that trauma, the majority of it, is trauma that was transferred from white-bodied people to 
black and brown body people. And that it's a, uh, it's a continuation of trauma that generated and then was generated in and then exported from Europe. Uh, through the transatlantic slave trade and occupation of the Americas, etc. And so a lot of the work I do is helping folks to access ancestors who in who, who can be related within the present because time is strange in that way. And they who lived on earth at whatever 2000 years ago, let's say, before the real expansion of uh, in in earnest of Roman Empire, not to pin everything on Rome, mm-hmm. but there are some not so awesome things about Roman Empire, and it, so those older ancestors who are living from an, this embodied Earth connected stance in some form or another, and and to bring them into the conversation, those older grandfathers. And grandmothers, but since we're talking about masculinity, so we'll keep it there. And to ask them what uh, what's it like for them, and what is it like for us in the present to uh, commune with that quality of energy? Because uh, there's been a lot of times in the last two thousand years that uh, men either picked up weapons or weapons were put in the hands of young men. It's like now you're going to fight. Now you're going to go kill some people. Now you're going to either attempt to defend your people or go kill some other people. And when there's not an etiquette of ritual to resolve those deaths, there's a ghost problem that builds up. And when it builds up intergenerationally, then you have boats full of white people with a whole long trail of white ghosts behind them fleeing uh, like a sort of like it's lancing of a boil fleeing Europe in a way, but exporting the, yes, the physical diseases, but, but the cultural illness as well, the amnesia. And, and so there's a, as a running from the ghosts that can happen. And so in that way, the men that are important to bring into the conversation are the men who preceded those listening in death, but are not yet ancestors, and whose hunger from a ghost state seeks to eat through us in the world. And so when there's not awareness of and accompanying ritual technology to ancestralize and address the ghosts, they'll continue to uh, eat our lives up. And their hunger is a kind of intimacy. It's how they're staying in a relationship. If you were a ghost, you would eat your family too. It's just what you do if you're a ghost. So the unaddressed violence, there's a tremendous backlog of it. And so learning how to grieve, learning how to ritually address the troubled dead and to help them to become seated as ancestors is part of, is one facet of the fix. That's such a powerful image, the the trail of ghosts, you know, behind the ships, you know, as they came over. That's what really struck me. Um, you know, I, I'm wondering, you know, you said that's it's a kind of intimacy for the ghost to eat the family or, or to eat through the family. And I wonder, what does that look like? Because, I mean, immediately I go to things like, yeah, addiction or um, alcoholism, you know, violence or penchant for violence and things that seem to uh those are all the more obvious manifestations and illness and you know physical symptoms it also looks like 
bids for connection in psychological jargon that go unmet, where a child is trying to get their father's attention. And they try 35 times in a row, and then they give up. And so next time, they're in a partnership, in a marriage, and they try three or four times in a row, and then they give up. And uh, and so it looks like a lot of invisible collapsing in and splitting off from life and uh, just vacating the world. Hmm. And and so that then contributes to all kinds of other suffering, of course, and it, it sets the conditions for, it looks like doing nothing at all. When there are protests and curfews all across the United States today, even in our sleepy, largely white little town of Asheville, North Carolina, it looks like people doing nothing at all in response to it. Because it's it's a bid for connection from part of our larger human community that's like, hey, we have a problem. This is not okay. Mm -hmm. So then rather than um, meet that in the messiness and vulnerability of it, there's a, there's, you know, doing nothing at all. It's one of the ways it looks. I know I'm speaking in a kind of stark way to underscore the depth of the problem. And the things I'm speaking to can shift. It's been, I didn't seek to have ritual work assisting the troubled dead as my day job. It just kind of emerged that way. And it's been a major part of my professional work in the last 15 years. And it's what I do. I train others in it. And there's there's job security, I tell you. <laughs> and, and so uh, there's a tremendous need. And yeah. Many of us who grew up in this culture with the religious background, I mean, I myself grew up uh, Roman Catholic briefly, you know, with my grandmother still very staunch. And I'm struck by religious uh, cosmologies or perspectives that the dead don't need us right they're they're with god they're in heaven they're in paradise you know if they were lived their life in a certain way but fundamentally they don't need us according to that understanding and so i myself have been blessed to be amongst certain teachers as well you know such as stephen jenkinson and others that have made the case that in fact that again is a deep deviation uh from a kind of foundational reciprocity that like a living culture, an indigenous cultural understanding was that they absolutely do need us and that there is a kind of a reciprocal pact um, with the dead that is part of this, a much deeper cycle. And so what has to happen for, you know, a, a sort of modern psychologized or conditioned, um, I'll just speak to the lens of through a man, what has to happen to stretch their willingness to perceive that that might actually be true? I think it's a misread just for the record of Catholicism if any given Catholic were to say that the tradition doesn't support ongoing relationship and interventions on behalf of the dead, uh, because it does. It's embedded in the tradition. But that that being said, if I imagine having to appeal to an otherwise skeptical straight white American dude and be like, why does this matter? And I might be like, do, are you interested in protecting your family? Uh, because, you know, not everything you could be threatened by is visible to you. 
Uh, and people who lived before germ theory still died of illness. And I'm suggesting that not that the culture has not equipped us to perceive accurately all possible threats. And the dead who are troubled may often skip a generation. And children are very vulnerable to unmetabolized family pain and trauma. And somebody might respond, well, I, I, don't, I don't feel affected by that. Well, good for you. Like, I hope there's never any challenges in your family. But if there are, you might consider that your family is embedded in a much bigger family, only some of which is visible. And so uh, that is the understanding of most everybody's ancestors at some point, that we're embedded in those larger systems. And so it's possible to appeal to a, a kind of protector identity and a, like do the responsible thing kind of identity. Another benefit to ancestral healing and engagement is to enjoy their clarity in terms of having a meaningful life and clarifying what we need to be spending our time with because we'll be dead soon. It doesn't we're not here that long. And it's good to make use of our life. And besides the clarity to actually enjoy their backing, folks who are working deeply with their own ancestors in a sustained healing way tend to enjoy better fortune and have a, a notch more protection and uh, good outcomes around them. It doesn't mean people are immune to suffering, but it's good to be resourced. And the view that only other living humans are real, it's colonialist damage. And so uh, the men that I have been really inspired by are, uh, well, I, to think of one example is several different teachers in whether it's a Native American church ceremony or in Yoruba culture and time in West Africa, like seeing men early in the morning after a night of ritual praying to the ancient goddesses that hold up life and weeping with the earth or giving offerings and praise and song in the company of other men and uh, just modeling what it is to praise the goddesses as an adult, as a straight adult, like burly dude who, you know, uh, who who's, yeah. So that, that modeling has been important for me. Yeah. I love that image. And I mean, and as you speak that, I mean, I, it kind of awakens a longing in me to be, to be more in those spaces, you know, like at this ancestral stirring of like, aha, uh -huh, you know, like there's something that would so deeply satiate and, and bring forth, I think that sense of kinship, um, which again is so absent, um, and, in, and, and continually enforced, you know, throughout the whole culture, as well as even the language, you know, like I've, I've, in study of English language, even how often it it doesn't grant a certain you know relationship with others through the way that we speak about you know other beings or the way that we you know say it and 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 kind of um, deanimate the world to the very way that we speak about it. Um, and I wonder for the listener and 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 you know those that are interested again like what is what begins the bridge towards this capacity you know to begin to learn to speak the language because you know some might say oh is it you know way out there esoteric you know beyond the beyond you know or is it something as you call practical animism seems to speak to a, yeah a, a way to access it yeah 
I'm a big fan of these kinds of understandings being very normal and very mainstream and very common. Like if you can't explain it to your kids, you're probably doing it wrong. Like, I mean, depending on how old they are, but there's a basic, uh, down to earth sensibility that, uh, and accessibility that, uh, is modeled anytime I've spent in, uh, multi-generational indigenous or earth honoring culture. Like the kids are around, the elders, the adults. It's a normal kind of thing. Like we're feeding this deity today. So everybody hands on deck, you know, and a good place to start. I mean, one good place to start is to actually learn, like recognize that these things are learned. Like if you wanted to learn Gaelic, you probably wouldn't just try to teach yourself. You would probably look at a book on it or uh, even have a tutor. And so it's not fair right at the start to expect to know all of it. Uh, and, and so doing some reading, some study, work with teachers, that kind of thing, and that's useful. I've done a lot of that, and I continue to do that, and it's useful. And one basic practice is just to start speaking out loud to the others. And there's something about speaking out loud that breaks a cultural silence and an agreement to not do such things. And that might mean speaking to your pets, to the plants in your home, to the land where you're at, to those who are wise and well among your ancestors, and even start to listen for a response. So interrupt the breakdown of communication just by saying hello. That helps. Beautiful. I'm recalling, actually, a number of years ago, I saw a talk given by Maladoma Somme um, in uh, Vancouver. And, you know, I was so struck by how the way he spoke about this topic, um, particularly with speaking with ancestors. I'd never heard him speak before, so um, I wasn't aware of his general tone. But <laughs> I could feel by the end, middle of the talk, he's in this exasperated kind of uh, um, energy where he's he's like, look, just just talk to them. Just talk to your ancestors. Come on, people. Like this kind of frustration of like right. it's not that difficult, people. Uh, and and yeah, that really highlighted, as you say, a kind of like like almost like the esoteric projection is another way of keeping it out of reach for people. That yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. If you were to say, well, how do you how do you talk to other humans? I'd be like, come on now, Ian. You've tried that. <laughs> like you just say hello, and maybe they speak English, but you know use your jaw, move your tongue in a certain way, you'll, you'll know. And and so it's, I don't want to say that there isn't stuff to be considered about it, because there is, and there are things that have to do with ritual safety and etiquette and all that. And that said, just begin, step in. Thinking about it and doing it are completely different. I really, as a doctor of psychology, thought I understood something about parenting. I've taught parenting groups before, but becoming a parent, now that's a different thing. And so uh, there's something to really be said for stepping into relationship and proceeding beyond, how do I know it's real? Is this okay? Is this happening into, okay, we just had a conversation. What was it about? Hmm. And what does listening look like? You know, you've mentioned, you know, what to listen for a response and, and maybe, the, yeah, I'm curious, what forms does that can that take everybody's knowing is you know everybody has their own way in with knowing uh what we're talking about is uh, epistemology really so a, a reductionistic 
Western materialist epistemology compared to a more animist or indigenous epistemology or way of knowing. And so if we say animist epistemologies, that includes things like uh, seeing intuitively, hearing, direct physical knowing, uh, like a, a sense of just knowing, right? Or somatic sensation, dreaming, uh, synchronicities, or uh, divination, things like that. So there are a lot of different possible uh, ways to know. Wow, that's beautiful. It, it, it just, I almost had a, I don't know, a visceral enlargening or a, a kind of dimensionality suddenly expand out from maybe my own penchant for um, intellectualizing, right? And only looking at that as as the realm of like, where could this show up? And then suddenly having you be like, well, there's all of these other <laughs> dimensions that are possible. Yeah, yeah, just life events. You can, uh, I mean, you, you could say, hey, ancestors, I invite you to manifest. I wish to know you like five times fast and then see what happens that week. You know, they're, they're I mean, use a little more discernment than that but there are it's not that difficult to generate intense contact wisdom and useful contact is a little different but yeah you can you can generate some contact what does food look like for them as well because you know in my own experience and again with other teachers too that i've heard things like song i mean things like actual food you know placed out that i'm curious other ways in which the ritual includes feeding and in what form there's a there's a useful pop psychology kind of thing about the five love languages that people uh some people like physical touch some people like gifts or words of praise or acts of service or just quality time so if we start there we could say that some of the spirits like gifts or offerings or actual tangible things uh, that could be incense it could be you know, art, it could be a steak, it could be, you know, all kinds of things. Uh, others might like quality time of just attunement with them, just sharing in presence. Others might like words of praise and song and devotion in that sense. Others might like, they're like, we don't need to bond, we just need you to go take care of your grandmother, or you need to go show up for the protest. Like, like we don't want to tell you about it, go help. And as for the physical touch, I suppose that would be like communion or possession, merging, channeling kind of things. But you can cuddle with the spirits <laughs> too. Just be m mindful about it. Mm. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's the the underlying thing of feeding. When you take it out of uh, food only language, uh, just becomes about energetic exchange and reciprocity. And uh, how do you feed any relationship? It's one of the principles that we explore a lot in the in the animism online courses, basically that all the wisdom that you have acquired of how to not mess up your human relationships, a lot of that, if not all of it, can be transferred into how to navigate these other kinds of relationships. The etiquette and the contours of it might vary a little bit, but we actually already know a lot about how to relate with people. We just have to reframe it that humans are only one kind of people. Because the others have culture too, yeah. Hmm. I love that as a as a headline of you know the five love languages of the spirits, <laughs> right? The ancestors. I mean, it, immediately you're right. It becomes more accessible. Of like, oh, wait a second. Yeah, like that's they're all very doable um, and not beyond reach. You know, I think for for most people to to begin. Mm -hmm. 
there's one phrase that came up in uh, a previous conversation as well, which maybe I'd love to to end here. Uh, you know, as we wind to a close, um, I think the phrase was uh, psychological ecology or psychology ecology. That's what I wrote down at least. But for me, I think what I what I um, peaked in me was the sense of yeah, being able to expand the landscape of um, uh, you know texture of terrain of um, language of practice that um, allows for a, a kind of yeah much more dynamic relational understanding of of oneself and the world. And I wonder if you could spend a bit of time just exploring that for the listener. One way to bridge between the cultural changes that we're reaching for and the need to foreground ecological change as well is the to learn to recognize supremacy type thinking and culture and the antidote to it, whether that's white supremacy, male supremacy, human supremacy. Uh, and, you know, there are a lot of different ways that that our group is better than this other group type thinking plays out. And a lot of the, the antidote to that is to be able to affirm an ethic of kinship and to be curious what is our accountability, what's our dance of connection with these others, and how do we find our own expression and our own specific unique destiny and calling within that. And... Another way of saying it is like if you want to be skillful at loving, it's important to not overlook and erase the network of relationships you're embedded in because you can unconsciously do a lot of harm. Mm. That can happen around race, around gender, uh, and but also it happens with the humans and the other than humans. So what I'm suggesting is that it become normal mainstream and reflected in the systems that humans are only one kind of person and if our human culture is not arising from the land it needs composted and changed so that when we interview the rivers and the dead and the trees and the wind about whether or not they feel in respected in our attempts at culture th mm. they can respond with like yeah better you got a little wobbly there at the start of the 21st century so uh the uh, you know those changes are going to take a long time they don't have to take so long but it's important to at least settle in for the rest of our lives and probably a few lifetimes after that and just keep being loving and course correcting again and again and again and asking for as much responsibility as we can safely and usefully hold mm. and if we do a good job with that we'll get more no problem and uh, and to know that effective service doesn't happen in a void in a vacuum it happens through relationship and you can't fulfill your destiny apart from others so we need it. We need each other. We don't even really exist apart from each other. So, hmm. I love that as a send off. <laughs> and maybe in our last minute or so, what what would you like to 
uh, speak to about how people can connect with their work. Um, I know you offer a number of courses. I myself am probably going to be signing up very soon. Cool. Yeah, the website is ancestralmedicine.org. And it's true. We have a lot of online courses, and they're quite accessible in terms of cost. And um, there are also folks I've trained in how to guide ancestral healing work who are very skillful fantastic people of uh, all different uh, ancestries and skill sets so i a strong plug for for them and their service and i've written a book ancestral medicine rituals for personal family healing and uh, when travel happened i used to travel around to teach and uh, but there's a lot of resources on the website so that's really the place to go and of course we're on social media and all that but uh just encourage listeners to feel hopeful about your ability to step in to relationship in an even more conscious way because we're already in relationship but it's possible to bring these other kinds of relationships even more conscious it's very doable beautiful thanks for your time today daniel thank you ian thank you for listening to today's mythic masculine podcast if you liked what you heard Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, and leave a comment. And if you'd like to support future episodes, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash ianmack. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash i-a-n-m-a-c-k to become an ongoing funder. Thank you.